Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Do Americans have a fundamental right to privacy? Amy Guida, professor of law at Tulane University in New Orleans and author of the new book, Seek and Hide, discusses the historic struggle in the United States between an individual's right to privacy and the public's right to know newsworthy information. She talks about cases involving privacy from the late 1800s to today, from President Grover Cleveland's war against the press for reporting on his dalliances to wrestler Hulk Hogan's multi-million dollar 2016 lawsuit against Gawker for invasion of privacy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Former journalist, now a First Amendment legal scholar at Tulane, third book is out called Seek and Hide, The Tangle History of the Right to Privacy. Tell me about the questions that you were thinking about as you decided there was there's a book here. Well, one of the one of the things that I think is most interesting is that uh, when I talk about privacy with people, people's responses, oftentimes we don't have any privacy, uh, therefore why are you uh, even thinking about why do you teach privacy? Uh, And of course, we do have privacy. Um, uh, We've had privacy for a very long time in the United States. Uh, And so I was really writing this book for those people. But I was also writing the book because I'm very intrigued with with the right to privacy over time, uh, how it began uh, very early uh, in the United States all the way through to today. And one of the um, one of the most important law review articles ever written titled the right to privacy uh, written in 1890 uh, of all times um, and uh, and how that uh, essay informs the way we think about privacy today. So it's all it's all tangled, uh, as the book um, suggests. uh, And yet uh, and yet it's there um, and uh, and in a very strong sense. Well, uh, before we we really learn more about the history, there's a couple of percolating current events that I wanted to get right uh, get with you right off the bat. And the, the uh, first, of course, being the draft opinion leak of Roe v. Wade. Uh, you've already written a piece about this for Wired magazine. Uh, how do you think? I mean, there's several different questions uh, attached to it that that are within the purview of what you're writing and thinking about. First of all, uh, what uh, it's, if it's if the Roe v. Wade decision is based on the right to privacy, we know it is not uh, enumerated in the con- in the Constitution. So, how early on did our founders think about this concept of privacy? So you're right that this leaked opinion uh, uh, suggests, in effect, that there uh, there is no uh, right to privacy um, in uh, the sense of uh, autonomy uh, and um, and. Uh, the way the government uh, can come in uh, and uh, tell us uh, what we can and can't do with regard to personal decisions. 
that's very different from the type of privacy I'm writing about, believe it or not. Um, the type of privacy that I write about is uh, the, the right to keep certain personal information to ourselves, uh, the right not to have others um, uh, reveal that information, uh, even uh, if we do not want them to. Uh, and, uh, and in this leaked opinion, uh, Justice Alito even suggests that there is this uh, divergence, that there are very different types of privacy. That's one of the problems in the United States, that we don't use the word privacy uh, in the Constitution. Uh, and, and that's why there is um, uh, such uh, uh, confusion uh, about it. Uh, the type of privacy I'm talking about, which is this uh, this right to keep uh, private information to ourselves, the right to keep people from revealing information about ourselves, uh, started um, very very early uh, in the United States. So, um, so even before uh, the First Amendment was ratified, there was the suggestion by um, by legislators that uh, you know sometimes uh, politicians might do wrong. Uh, and uh, and they used um, the the phrase male conduct, uh, so that sometimes um, uh, uh, these politicians uh, might uh, might engage in male conduct. Uh, is it the public's business to know about this male conduct? Uh, and and by that um, uh, the uh, the meaning of that term back then was uh, having uh, affairs um, outside of marriage, uh, and uh, and so. Uh, there was this this um, this suggestion uh, that, in fact, uh, instances of male conduct uh, should, in fact, be kept private. Uh, that it was not the public's business to know, uh, and uh, and that was even before the First Amendment is ratified. So when we think about um, privacy in that sense, what information we all have the right to keep private. Um, certainly not politicians and their male conduct necessarily today, um, but but what information we have um, the right to keep uh, private, that's been around for a very, very long time, even before the First Amendment was ratified. Understanding that it's a different kind of privacy, your book is rife with examples of uh, times in history when information was leaked by the media and how it ended up changing standards as a result. Uh, have you done any thinking about the decision by uh, by the publishers to, to actually publish this draft opinion and what the repercussions typically are for that kind of act, either for the journalists involved or the publication? Sure, that's that's a great question. And, and I'll leave uh, the, the, the question about whether or not criminal um, uh, criminal uh, laws might come into play here. Uh, but with regard to tort law, so whether or not uh, the, um, the publication Politico could uh, conceivably be liable for some sort of invasion of privacy, uh, the answer here is no. Uh, and the, the reason why is because even though Justice Alito very clearly wanted to keep this information private, secret, uh, the law suggests that when something is newsworthy, uh, the publications have the right to publish it. And certainly this draft opinion is decidedly newsworthy. And so I doubt very much that Justice Alito would ever bring any sort of privacy claim against Politico. But if he did, he would surely lose 
uh, because there's news value in this leaked opinion. It tells us very likely um, the, the fate of Roe versus Wade in just a few weeks. Uh, and, uh, and therefore, there's definite news value there. And no court would decide that uh, there was any invasion of privacy on these facts. One other contemporary issue and then, then to history, and that is Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, we learn a lot about uh, publishing in the digital age through your book. Uh, and Elon Musk is declaring that he is going to make it an open forum. What are you thinking about when you've seen all of the commentary that's happened about what he might do to Twitter? Sure. So, uh, so one of the worries is that any sort of open forum where anyone can say whatever they like uh, is that courts will come down uh, even harder on media. Uh, and when I say media, I mean all forms of media from journalism to, um, to social media, including Twitter and Facebook. Uh, what's happened in, uh, in the past is that when media, broadly speaking, has published something private or when media uh, defames, so when there, there are social media posts that, um, that defame uh, individuals, courts will feel uh, more strongly about changing the law to make it more responsive to plaintiffs in those sorts of cases. So my worry is that if Musk opens Twitter uh, to um, any sort of post, that ultimately what will happen is that Twitter itself will be harmed, um, as will uh as will then uh, all media conceivably uh, by courts very much fed up with this sort of thing. Okay, to the history. Uh, and and uh, I will encourage readers to uh, look back in time farther than I'm going to start, just in the interest of time, because there's much to learn and some great stories about the founders and the early days of the republic. Uh, but I do want to start with those two men that authored the piece that you just referred to, and that's Sam Warren and Louis Brandeis. Uh, Brandeis is a more familiar name to people. Who is Sam Warren? So Sam Warren is very important uh, in this essay in the Harvard Law Review called The Right to Privacy. Uh, he was uh, a lawyer uh, from a very, very rich family. Uh, he went to Harvard Law School, which is where he met Louis Brandeis. Uh, and, um, and they uh, went into practice together in Boston. So they had uh, a, a law firm together. Uh, and Warren was of great interest to the media at the time. And the reason why Sam Warren was of such interest and not so much Louis Brandeis, nobody really knew what he, who he was back then. He, his, um, his name, he was becoming more and more familiar as a lawyer, uh, but he certainly wasn't, um, uh, let's say famous in, even in Boston at the time. But Sam Warren was, uh, and the reason why was because number one, he was from a very rich family uh, the Warrens, they owned a paper mill, uh, one of the largest paper mills in the United States at the time. Uh, this made them millionaires. Uh, and so media was very interested uh, in, uh, in them. Uh, but, but what really sparked media interest in Sam Warren was when he married the Secretary of State's daughter. Uh, and politicians at the time were the celebrities uh, of the day. Uh, and, so, uh, and so when Sam Warren married uh, the Secretary of State's daughter, uh, this caused uh, headlines um, uh, across the nation uh, about the wedding. Uh, and then at that point, 
uh, Sam Warren, in effect, married into becoming a public figure. And uh, and newspapers of the day were very interested in uh, in who he was, uh, what parties he was um, having, what he was building on his property, uh, what paintings he purchased. Uh, and, and so there was a lot of gossip in the paper uh, at the time uh, about uh, the Warrens. Because his wife, Sam Warren's wife, was the daughter of the Secretary of State, Sam Warren also became very good friends with President Grover Cleveland. And President Grover Cleveland uh, had um, his own interests in privacy and his own uh, hatred uh, of media, let's say, uh, because he had married, President Cleveland had married uh, a young woman uh, who was, in effect, uh, his adopted daughter. So what had happened was her father had died. Uh, her father was Cleveland's law partner. And so he took care of her uh, after her father's death and before. She had called him Uncle Cleve. Uh, and then when she turned 18 and he was nearing 50, uh, they started to date. Uh, and then uh, she became uh, Mrs. Grover Cleveland uh, when Cleveland um, uh, was president. Uh, and, and Cleveland really despised media and really begged for uh, privacy in his personal uh, affairs, um, what he considered his personal affairs. Uh, and so it, it's pretty clear to me that, um, that Grover Cleveland had a lot to do with the arguments made in this essay titled, uh, titled The Right to Privacy. He didn't like media. He had an awful lot to hide, uh, not only with regard to, um, to the relationship with his what was his adopted daughter, in effect, his ward, uh, but also uh, the fact that he'd had um, uh, a child, the allegations were, um, uh, before uh, he was married to anyone. So there was a great deal of uh, gossip swirling about him and what he considered his private life. So he, he despised media, he begged for privacy, uh, and he had uh, a lawyer uh, in Sam Warren who could then uh, write about uh, the importance of the right to privacy uh, and how it's important to all of us, including politicians. And that point is made uh, in this right to privacy essay. Yeah, you uh, report that Cleveland spoke at Harvard and, uh, and in fact, broke down in tears about uh, his invasion of privacy. And probably both of these men witnessed that before they, they wrote the essay. This essay seems to be a real seminal point in your book. You keep coming back to it throughout. What has its legacy been in the areas that you think about? So extraordinary. Uh, very often, courts and uh change makers generally will refer to this 1890 law review article as starting the right to privacy in the United States. That's not really true. It was around for, for, um, for more than a century before. Uh, and yet, uh, and yet a lot of people believe that it was the thing that really started privacy. Uh, and so you see it referred to in cases of all sorts of privacy from uh, the type of privacy uh, I write about to um, to interests in uh, autonomy, uh, to um, uh, search and seizure cases. So any sort of privacy right, uh, including access to government information, uh, 
will refer oftentimes to this uh, law review article um, even in 2022. So, uh, so it remains this, this critically important piece uh, that we still refer to today. And a lot of people don't understand uh, that Grover Cleveland had a lot to do with it, as did Sam Warren's um, own uh, hatred of media. Well, we know that uh, Louis Brandeis went on to be one of the most recognized jurists on the Supreme Court. What happened to Sam Warren? So sadly, uh, what happened to Sam Warren was uh, he, he, so so Louis Brandeis became uh, a very uh, famous lawyer uh, in the United States, um, even before he, uh, he joined the court. Uh, and, um, and he was the people's lawyer. Uh, and so his star uh, was uh, certainly rising. Um, and, and Sam Warren, meantime, uh, was uh, involved in the paper mill. Uh, and so he left law practice uh, and ran uh, his father's paper mill. Uh, and, um, and some people suggest that uh, he had, his, his brother suggested that he had uh, taken more money than he was due. Uh, and so his brother brought a claim in court uh, and uh, and so that lawsuit was covered uh, in media of the day, primarily in Boston. That's where the lawsuit was. Uh, and so Sam Warren, many people say, because he he was deeply concerned about the family um, revelations that might come out uh, in media uh, in 1910, uh, he sadly committed suicide. Uh, so just as this was percolating, just as these headlines were were being reported, um, he he killed himself um, conceivably uh, over uh, worries about what might come out in media. Before we leave that era, I wanted to have you tell one other story briefly, because one of the through points in your book is that the powerful often have more to hide, but they often have more recourses than everyday people might do. And in the case of President Cleveland, you write that he weaponized privacy laws to prosecute a journalist named Calvin Chase. What's important about this, that story? So what's important about that story is that uh, is that Chase was this critically important figure in journalism in Washington, D.C. Uh, and and he was uh, called uh, a bulldog. So um, so he was a black journalist uh, and uh, his newspaper um, was um, was, of course, published to all credited uh, by all uh, and uh, and he began an investigation into a Cleveland appointee. And Grover Cleveland did not like Chase uh, and believed that this was um, uh, that this investigation uh, was wrong. Uh, and uh, and when Chase reported uh, that this Cleveland appointee had, in effect, sexually harassed women uh, in the office, uh, then uh, Cleveland had Chase arrested. And one of the arguments there was. Uh, a privacy-like argument that if Chase believed that there was wrongdoing in the office, that Chase should have gone to Cleveland himself and not have reported it in his newspaper, that the important thing was to reach Grover Cleveland, who could have then fired the appointee. Uh, a jury hears this argument and a jury believes it. 
So a jury says, yes, we agree that Chase went overboard by reporting in the newspaper. Uh, he shouldn't have done that, even if it were true. Uh, and so Chase goes to jail for three months, uh, hopes that Grover Cleveland will set him free. Uh, and of course, Grover Cleveland, who despises media, uh, refuses to do that and says, in effect, that Chase will um, will teach all journalists a lesson um, that uh, that they can't report uh, everything that they that they want to without facing some sort of repercussions. So um, so that's uh, that's the suggestion of uh, of privacy uh, as a weapon. It was not our business. The argument went that uh, that this man, uh, this appointee had sexually harassed people uh, in the office, uh, that in fact, it was only the president's um, uh, um, uh, right to know that information. Uh, and, uh, and that was then proved by the fact that uh, Chase went to jail uh, for, um, for those months. Uh, and Cleveland uh, went on um, to, um, to retire uh, in Princeton and um, live a fine life with his, um, with his young wife. So you're, you paint a picture of a pendulum swimming, swinging back and forth throughout history of emphasis of the right to privacy and uh, the First Amendment right to publish. And uh, I, we mentioned one through point of the powerful ha having more secrets to hide along the way. A couple of other ones that are, might be important to get on the table. One is that technology frequently made people more concerned about privacy rights uh, throughout history as illustrations, then photographs, then uh, the what, telegraph during uh, the Civil War, and on and on as technology advanced, more publication, more concerns. Uh, so I want to fast forward into the 20th century with that and uh, talk about what happened to speech during World War One in this country, what was the attitude about people uh, with all of the concerns about infiltration of, of non-loyalists in the United States and the like? What was happening in, in the legal sphere regarding privacy versus the right to publish? So, uh, so in this tort sense, uh, what had happened was uh, there was, back in the early 1900s, uh, one of the very first cases involving privacy uh, looked to um, images of people used in advertising. Uh, and, so, and so when Warren and Brandeis wrote their article, The Right to Privacy, their article really focused on media and media's uh, uh, revelation of information. Uh, the first cases that were decided uh, had to do with the use of people's images in advertising. Uh, and then very slowly uh, throughout uh, the early 1900s, uh, the idea that we had the right to um, protect our private information grew in court as well. Uh, and, and back then, uh, there's certainly reflected um, in uh, in the case law, uh, and then also otherwise, um, this this idea that you know we should all keep our mouths shut, uh, that that there's the potential uh, to reveal certain information that shouldn't get out there to people who shouldn't hear it, and so uh, and so in that way too, those interests, those um, those governmental interests. Uh, oftentimes inform uh, how we think about privacy uh, in a legal sense. 
So after the uh, world, 19 teens, the World War I is over, uh, Louis Brandeis is now a justice on the Supreme Court. He joins Oliver Wendell Holmes. The two of them together are First Amendment legends, uh, you, as you describe them, and certainly look to throughout the rest of history as authoring some of the most memorable phrases about the First Amendment. Can't shout fire in a crowded theater on limits to free speech, having the clear and present danger of imminent harm, the marketplace of ideas. These phrases all came from these justices and, and their opinions. But you say that it's very easy to pluck certain phrases out of their opinions and credit them with First Amendment absolutism. But that's not really the case, that it's more nuanced than that. So what should we know about their views of privacy versus the right to publish? Sure. They, they very much embraced privacy, and they embraced privacy uh, in their personal lives. Uh, and, uh, and they also embraced it uh, within uh, case law. Uh, and, so, uh, and so just as, as, one, uh, as one example, uh, in, uh, when the, the court decided uh, that certain letters uh, should be accessible by government um, investigators. Uh, both um, both Brandeis and Holmes uh, disagreed uh, and wrote this, um, you know, pretty impassioned um, uh, decision um, uh, or opinion, uh, suggesting uh, that privacy uh, was much more uh, important than that. So you you see them uh, as embracing First Amendment rights. Um, including in this marketplace of ideas uh, concept, um, and uh, and yet uh, and yet recognizing that privacy interests are are very special interests, uh, and that uh, as I suggest um, that uh, that uh, a, a willy nilly publisher uh, would not be allowed to rent a stall uh, in Holmes's marketplace of ideas. Uh, so, um, so you're correct that this language sounds very broad, uh, but if you go back and take a look at what they were about as individuals, um, and also the, the cases that they, or the, the opinions that they wrote, dissenting um, and otherwise, that embraced privacy, it's very clear that, uh, that they, did, they were not First Amendment absolutists. So from a lasting legacy perspective, what have the two left in the legal system that is most enduring? Well, I would say that I, I think that uh, that both this Holmes and his um, this marketplace of ideas uh, concept um, is uh, is critically important. Uh, but then also, uh, if we think about um, uh, Louis Brandeis um, and uh, and his impassioned uh, plea for privacy in a criminal sense. Um, so he did not uh, believe that the government should be able to uh, wiretap phone lines, for example, to um, to uh, listen in on private conversations. He believed that a warrant was necessary first. Uh, and, uh, and the majority of the Supreme Court said, no, no warrant is necessary. Uh, these phone lines are outside the home. Uh, police don't need a warrant. They can just tap into those lines. Well, Brandeis, of course, wrote this um, really beautiful language that echoes in large part 
uh, the language in the right to privacy um, and, and makes a plea uh, for privacy and suggests that um, police should need a warrant, uh, that these are, um, are very private moments that police uh, might be able to listen in on um, and that a warrant was appropriate in, uh, in such cases. And of course now uh, that's exactly the way the law is. So yes, police do need a warrant today. Uh, and so if we think about those um, uh, uh, lasting legacies, uh, that's certainly one I, I believe that Brandeis would, um, would want to be remembered for. As the 20th century progresses, not only is society changing, but you write about how journalism is changing and really becoming a profession. Uh, how did that change the equation as pro uh, professionalism seeped more and more into journalism? So my, my theory here is that, and it continues through to today, uh, that, that as journalism, so, so back in the day, uh, we had Pulitzer and Hearst and, uh, and those sorts of um, publishers uh, who oftentimes published with very little regard for any sort of privacy interests. And, uh, and so courts, as I suggested, uh, began to embrace this idea of privacy and to suggest that publishers would in fact be liable for publishing truthful information if that information was not newsworthy. And so, so for as, as one example, uh, there was a, a journalist who took a picture of conjoined twins uh, and published that image. A court found very early on that there was privacy in that image uh, and that the journalist would be liable for, um, for taking the picture and publishing it um, as, uh, as he did. And so you get this sense of, um, uh, courts being very distrustful of journalism and feeling emboldened to second guess those sorts of news decisions. Uh, in the 1920s, um, there, uh, there uh, began um, a uniform code of ethics uh, across the United States. So newspaper editors got together and decided that uh, there would be one code of ethics uh, for all journalists. Uh, and and that code of ethics then uh, included um, privacy provisions. Uh, the suggestion that some information was too private to be reported and that uh, all journalists then should respect that sort of privacy. And so as journalism began to do that, so as journalism began to become more ethical uh, and as the Pulitzer and Hearst papers toned down in response to these ethics concerns, courts became much less comfortable second-guessing news decisions by journalists. They began to trust journalists. And so my argument is then at, at that point you get, and certainly in the decades later, uh, you get courts backing off and saying, in effect, who are we to second guess what you trained journalists, ethics abiding journalists have decided is newsworthy. Uh, and, uh, and so it was, um, it, it started uh, a golden era for, uh, for journalism, uh, journalism that uh, in Sam Warren's day in the 1890s and the time of the right to privacy, uh, no one wanted to be a journalist, um, you know, that, that would just be a very distasteful sort of profession, uh, certainly for the elite. Um, and then by the 1930s, 
uh, Mickey Mouse had started his own newspaper. Uh, and so there's a, a book that, um, that uh, for kids suggesting as much that if Mickey Mouse could be uh, a journalist, uh, then certainly all might want to be journalists because, um, because they were so ethics abiding and, um, and made good ethical uh, decisions. And so you see that reflected in uh, the, the court's decisions of the day. Um, suggesting that journalists had the right to report uh, truth uh, and uh, and that um, the courts themselves were not comfortable second-guessing those decisions. Don't want to get too far ahead of your story, but how long did that golden age of journalism last? Well, I think, I would say, uh, that it really began crumbling in the age of reality television. So when the, when uh, when news and entertainment merged, arguably, and I don't really buy that whole idea necessarily, but but, but some people have suggested that certain programs uh, were not really news, that they were entertainment. And you see that sort of pushback in those de decisions very early on, like in the in the late 80s uh, and certainly by the early 90s, this distaste um, in the mouths of judges uh, for what they consider journalism. They called it media, uh, but, um, but by calling it media, uh, they then could hamper what we would consider uh, uh, journalism as well. People that see polling today about public attitudes toward the press will be surprised at this report that during the time, especially post-Watergate, uh, 72% of the public believed in and trusted the media. And the public's right to know was championed during that, that period. That's the pendulum swinging the other direction. Now, during this uh, period of time, there's a story in your book about a documentary film that was made that took 25 years of litigation uh, to actually be shown. It's just, it was done by Frederick Wiseman, and it is called Titicut Follies. What is important about this story in your telling? So what's important about the story is that it's an example of a journalist going into a prison for the mentally ill and recording the abuse of prisoners there. So we would think that that sort of truth should then be celebrated, that we should all be able to see what the government is doing to, um, to people uh, it imprisons, uh, especially those, not especially those, but, but including uh, the mentally ill, of course. Uh, I don't know why Frederick Wiseman was allowed uh, inside the prison, uh, and yet he was. Uh, so he puts together this documentary showing um, this this abuse of, of prisoners uh, and uh, and uh, premieres it uh, at a film festival in New York. Uh, almost immediately, it's shut down by the government. So the government argues that uh, that there is uh, the right to privacy. Ultimately, this is the government's argument that these inmates uh, within the documentary, featured within the documentary, have a right to privacy. And if they did not sign waivers, and, and some of them didn't, uh, that the government needed to come in and protect the privacy of those inmates. Now, if you look at it in a legal sense, and the way I look at news as a former journalist, I would say, well, 
that's decidedly newsworthy information. This is truth. This shows how the government is mistreating these people. And yet courts were convinced by the government itself that the privacy interests of those people trumped our public interest in the treatment of them. And they convinced, as you suggested, uh, the courts for more than two decades. And yet I think a lot of people don't know about this documentary. They don't know about this um, suppression uh, of truth um, that is um, decidedly uh, troubling. Um, and and it's, it's of interest to me that, and maybe it was because uh, by the time it was released to everyone, people in certain areas could see it. People in uh, psychology, people uh, who were lawyers could see it, uh, but not the general public. So by the time it was released to the general public, maybe it was old news. But it's very unusual because uh, because in law schools today, we really don't learn about um, or discuss Titicut Follies all that much. And yet I think it's critically important in this this history of privacy and also sort of like the, the Chase saga, uh, how privacy can be used um, as a weapon to prevent then the revelation of truth. We have just a short 27 second clip of it. 1967 and yet public couldn't see it until 1991. Let's watch. You, uh, you tell me that if I should go back, I will be back here. Right. Now, obviously, then you must know something that, uh, that I do not know. See, I tell you something. I have to leave you now. I have to tell you something. Which is, excuse me, which is nothing, which is nothing really dangerous. That's right. I I, I, in, some, in some cases, schizophrenia paranoia is dangerous, as the dictionary would, uh, yes. would say. But uh, practically, uh, it's not dangerous. Huh? Schizophrenia paranoia is merely the love of your mother and father. So that is an exchange between one of the patients and the prison and uh, his doctor talking about his care, just as an example of what the public would have learned about life inside that facility if it had been released uh, earlier. Uh, we, we have about 25 minutes left to go and lots of history to cover, so I'm going to fast forward once again. So the, the 1991, when this film was finally released, was also the dawn of the Internet age. How did the Internet change the equation of the issues that you're writing about? Well, uh, one of the ways is thinking back to ethics and how, uh, and how courts uh, embrace this idea of journalistic ethics and trusted journalism more. Uh, anyone can publish anything on the Internet. So, uh, so through social media and otherwise, uh, publishing in an instant to the world is possible. Uh, and, and many of those publishers uh, are, are not ethical, uh, as we all know. Uh, and um, and here I'm thinking about um, uh, websites, including uh, revenge porn websites, uh, even social media posts that might invade privacy or might um, be defamatory. Uh, in that sense, then, uh, uh, it, uh, because of reality television, courts were already uh, questioning um, media and whether there might be some rollback of of um, of rights, uh, despite the First Amendment, uh, and uh, and then suddenly, boom, the internet happens. Uh, everyone can be a publisher, uh, and so you can imagine um, the 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 worry that courts had uh, about um, about invasions of privacy, uh, about defamation, um, and uh, and how they were. Uh, much more interested suddenly in 
um, in not uh, giving media in a general sense uh, the amount of leeway that they had uh, back in the day when um, when 70 plus percent of the public trusted uh, journalists. Congress got into the act in 1996 with a major overhaul of telecommunications policy in this country. Telecommunications Act of 1996 signed by President Bill Clinton. In that was a particular provision, which we hear about today, called Section 230. It was championed by a Democrat and a Republican, Ron Wyden, then in the House, now Senator, and then Congressman from California, Chris Cox, Republican. Uh, what was their intention with Section 230, and what were the consequences of it? So the worry back then, so this is at the, the very dawn of the Internet, even during floor discussion uh, about this provision, uh, there was the suggestion that legislators didn't really understand what the Internet was. Back in 1996, there was the suggestion uh, in newspapers, or there, there were newspapers would define the internet because people didn't understand what it was. It was like this this giant um, uh, this this giant file cabinet uh, accessible to uh, to all of us is the way news stories would um, would describe it. Uh, and what had happened in court was that uh, one of these websites. Uh, had published a defamatory piece on a bulletin board. So some member of the public had um, had published um, a defamatory statement on a bulletin board uh, run by uh, Prodigy. Uh, the person who was defamed then sues uh, the um, the internet service provider. So so in effect, um, the, the the website uh, owner, uh, let's say. Uh, and uh, and a court found a potential liability there. And so Congress, in believing that growth of the Internet was critically important, rightly so, of course, uh, to the nation's economy, decided to protect websites like Prodigy uh, that ran bulletin boards and otherwise. And so the idea was that by 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 enacting a law that protected those websites, websites then would be able to go in and edit information published by others, remove information published by others without being liable for defamatory or privacy invading information that remained up anyway. So the idea behind Section 230 uh, was to uh, grow the internet, grow the nation's economy, and to protect those entities online that might otherwise be liable for defamation or invasion of privacy um, uh, uh, under existing law. So it changes then, uh, it changes the way uh, we treat electronic publishers. Section 230 suggests that, or mandates that, uh, if there's a publisher that accepts information from others, people out there who publish something to the website, that website will not be liable for it. And, and what that means, it's me, it means that's why Reddit exists today. That's why comments on um, newspaper websites online exist. 
without Section 230, Reddit would surely not exist because it would be liable for any defamatory or privacy invading information posted by anyone. Same thing with comments on, um, on newspaper uh, websites. Facebook, for example, would be liable for um, defamatory and privacy invading uh, uh, comments there. So it protects those sorts of um, websites uh, from leaving up information uh, that uh, is damaging to, to individuals. So the clip I have here, I'll call it a tale of two presidents. This is President Clinton signing the legislation in 1996 and President Trump very unhappy with Section 230 30 years later. Today, with the stroke of a pen, our laws will catch up with our future. We will help to create an open marketplace where competition and innovation can move as quick as light. Currently, social media giants like Twitter receive an unprecedented liability shield based on the theory that they're a neutral platform, which they are not, not an editor with a viewpoint. My executive order calls for new regulations under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act to make it that social media companies that engage in censoring or any political conduct will not be able to keep their liability shield. That's a big deal. Amy Guida, what happened to Section 230 over 30 years? So what happened to Section 230 is that uh, people began to realize that Section 230 was perhaps too protective of certain websites. And I'll exclude uh, former President Trump uh, from the discussion, at least uh, for the moment. Uh, it's interesting that, um, that President Clinton suggests that an open marketplace uh, of ideas um, uh, uh, would, um, would thrive uh, on the internet uh, under Section 230. Uh, and certainly that's true. Uh, but again, thinking back to Holmes's uh, marketplace of ideas, maybe there should be some sort of protection for um, for privacy uh, on the internet uh, as well. Uh, and um, and the reason why I say that is because uh, because of this protection, certain websites uh, began including revenge porn websites, uh, revenge porn websites that would literally say. Uh, get revenge on your ex, send in nude photographs uh, of them to humiliate uh, them. Uh, and under Section 230, those sorts of websites thrived. They would not be liable because they were the passive website and the people who were posting the images then would conceivably be liable, but the website itself would not be under Section 230. So you get a lot of people today um, suggesting that Section 230 does need to change. Uh, and and um, former President Trump's interest uh, is, um, is very much uh, in um, suggesting that, uh, that Section 230 uh, is too protective of Twitter's choices um, to remove uh, certain, at least uh, right now, uh, remove certain um, certain tweets uh, and otherwise um, that he believes uh, ultimately uh, censor uh, one particular uh, group. Um, but but uh, on the other side of the aisle, and and actually um, uh, in the Republican Party as well, uh, there are calls to uh, limit Section 230. 
uh, as being too protective um, of the sorts of websites that I'm talking about um, as well. So again, this this suggestion that uh, that Section 230 um, has been taken advantage of by certain publishers, uh, and that today maybe we need to rethink um, rethink Section 230's uh, level of protection at the very least. Uh, if not, as some people suggest, do away with it completely. I want to have you tell one other story uh, as we uh, round out our last quarter hour here, and that is from 2016, Hulk Hogan, the wrestler, taking the publisher Gawker to court over his privacy issues. Uh, why don't we uh, have you tell the story, and then we'll show the clip, which is uh, the outcome. Sure. So, uh, so I've been teaching privacy now for more than 20 years. Uh, and back, I started almost at the time uh, of Section 230, a few years after that. Uh, and I'd been telling my students that uh, someday there would be a website that would publish a sex tape featuring a celebrity and that that would then uh, create the clash of uh, the right to privacy versus freedom of the press, freedom of expression. Uh, and so uh, one of my students uh, sent me an email uh, and said, hey, uh, you might be interested in the fact that Gawker, the Gawker website, has just published a sex tape featuring uh, professional wrestler Hulk Hogan. Uh, and so I immediately uh, went to the website. Um, part of my job, of course, is to understand what's going on on the Internet um, and to watch the sorts of things that are uh, that are out there. I better inform myself. Uh, when I do this. And so I clicked on the link uh, and watched Hulk Hogan uh, nude, uh, having sex with a woman uh, on the bed uh, with full um, sounds, um, audio um, and uh, and video of him uh, fully, fully nude. Uh, and Hulk Hogan after that uh, brought a claim for uh, the right to privacy uh, against Gawker. Uh, and uh, he argued uh, that even though it was truthful, that, uh, that that his level of privacy then would trump uh, the right of uh, Gawker to publish um, that truth. Uh, and ultimately a jury agreed with him. Uh, and a lot of people I think in the United States were, were shocked at that uh, because we understand so much I think about uh, freedom of the press and, uh, and truth and how truth will protect us. Uh, and yet this was an instance of someone's privacy then uh, becoming more important, in effect, a jury decided, uh, than uh, the public's right to know. It's something that had been a part of law um, since the very beginning of the United States, uh, but, uh, but suddenly came on full force um, in, uh, in, that, um, in, in some sense when Gawker uh, published the, the, um, the sex tape and brought, brought this to the fore. Hulk Hogan triumphed in court. Here is a 35-second clip uh, with a news story about the outcome of that case. This morning, an absolute victory for Hulk Hogan in his invasion of privacy battle against Gawker. The jury siding with the former wrestler on all counts, awarding him $115 million, finding against Gawker its founder Nick Denton and former editor-in-chief A.J. Delario for posting a secretly recorded tape of Hogan having sex. The plaintiff proved that the video was posted in such a manner as to outrage and cause mental suffering, shame, or humiliation to a person of ordinary sensibilities. Yes. Amy Guida, how did the Gawker case 
change the landscape for publishing on the internet? So I think it, it continues to have repercussions today. Uh, what's, uh, what's happened even beyond publishing on the internet is that uh, number one, maybe individuals who publish generally understand that some information can be off limits. Uh, but, but second, and I think even more importantly to, um, to journalism, uh, is that, that when this decision came down, plaintiff's attorneys across the United States suddenly recognized that there will be times when they can win invasion of privacy cases against journalism, against media. And so I think that that case emboldened plaintiff's attorneys to bring claims that they probably never would have in the past. And I'll give you one quick example. Uh, there was an NFL football player who was injured in a fireworks accident. He needed his finger amputated. ESPN tweeted out that information, but also included that, um, that NFL player's medical chart. Uh, and a court that the NFL player then brought an invasion of privacy claim against ESPN uh, and a court very early on decided that uh, that NFL player did in fact have a valid privacy claim, even though there was news in the event itself and the amputation itself, the medical chart was the NFL player's personal information and should not in effect have been published. Um, a jury could decide as much. Uh, and so, um, and so that uh, then um, opens, it shows you, I think, how the Hulk Hogan case opens the door uh, to an increasing number of these sorts of cases. And you see even more cases uh, today, um, almost 10 years later. So for the most part, we've been talking about some aspects of the media as we've talked about the right to privacy versus published. But if we come to today, it's not just what's published by sites on the media or people publishing themselves on places like Facebook and TikTok, uh, Instagram. It's data, which is everywhere in society. Our cell phones tracking our every move, uh, our every transaction with credit cards all being swept up into uh, big data. And 80% of the public today says they're concerned about privacy. At the same time, many people are publishing every aspect of their lives online one way or the other. So where does this pendulum of back and forth between concerns about privacy versus publishing and availability to the public personal information stand? Well, right now, courts are anxious to find privacy in data bits. Uh, and so even though I, I think what's happening is people don't understand the level of information that companies can access about them and use in some way by selling to, um, to other companies uh, or, or otherwise. And the more that we can get that information out, the less likely people will share online. In the meantime, you have judges who do understand and judges are finding privacy in data more often. So, um, so what comes to mind is, um, is a court uh, that suggested very recently that uh, that individuals, if they share information on the internet and they expect it to only reach their friends and family, there can still be privacy in that information. That's extraordinary. So 10 years ago, or, or even fewer years ago, uh, there was the suggestion that when we share information on the internet, it's public information. 
Well, courts are pulling back on that now and saying that, you know, if we intended to only reach our friends and family, uh, we're going to protect the information beyond that. So uh, so th that's why I, I teach undergrad undergrad uh, classes in media, too, uh, so that that we can all begin to understand the importance of keeping certain things uh, private, not sharing them because perhaps they can come um, they can be used against us. Uh, but then also this this idea and, and California law allows it now. Uh, and some companies will um, give anyone access to this data, our ability to access the data that companies have on us so that we can come to better understand how they think of us and how the data bits that we enter online uh, can become part of a compilation of who we are uh, and how that information might be sold to insurance companies, for example, you know, in, in troubling ways that, that we never suspected um, as I eat my ice cream cone with, um, you know, with four scoops. Um, I think an insurance company would um, would want to know that uh, that information. You have an interesting story in the book that you applied for your own credit report, uh, your own uh, background check, as it were, and came up with, was it 200 pages of data on yourself, your family and your associates, all part of your report? That's exactly right. Were you so shocked? I, I, yes, I was. Uh, I live a very uninteresting life. Um, which I guess I'm glad for now, uh, and yet, uh, and yet, there were 200 pages uh, in my background check. Uh, I also, and and that did include some information about my neighbors uh, and their private information, um, and and so it's deeply troubling that that information is available for $150. Uh, and if you can find a private detective to do this uh, for any reason, that's an awful lot of data you can get. Uh, about um, about someone else. Uh, in addition, this um, access uh, to um, to data uh, uh, allowed me to find out that um, that Amazon knows that I own a bulldog. Uh, so that's just one data point that um, that Amazon uh, knows um, about me. Uh, and there's an awful lot um, in addition uh, out there that that other companies have gathered as well. But this is not information you chose to publish. This is all being swept up by your daily life. So uh, you compare the United States with Europe frequently throughout the book. Europe has the, what's called the GDPR, which includes the right to be forgotten with information on the internet. Do you anticipate that there's going to be a robust debate at the national level here about similar legislation? Yes, if you speak with privacy officers in big companies today, uh, many of them will suggest that, at least those I've spoken with will suggest, uh, that uh, it's just a matter of time before we have GDPR-like um, provisions here. Uh, and one of the reasons why is because it's very difficult and very cumbersome for uh, for them to uh, to carve out this exception for uh, for the United States. In the meantime, Congress isn't really taking action, but state legislatures are. Uh, and so you see GDPR-like uh, interests in legislation uh, today. Um, 
biometric privacy, even privacy in the way we walk. Uh, so some state legislatures have suggested that. So a real push toward privacy in state legislatures. And you see the same thing in uh, in courts as well. So uh, so um, as I suggested, this this real embrace of of things, for example, like home addresses, uh, the Supreme Court, um, despite uh, this leaked opinion uh, with regard to privacy uh, in a row sense, um, suggested very recently uh, that there is a right to privacy or at least privacy interests in home addresses. Uh, that because of doxing today, the revelation of people's home addresses uh, and the suggestion that other people should go there in protest or worse, uh, then um, the court said because of that, uh, there, there are privacy interests even in home addresses. So, um, so you see, again, this real push um, toward um, toward privacy in, in those senses as well. The book is called Seek and Hide, The Tangled History of the Right to Privacy. Amy Guida joins us from Tulane University, where she is a legal scholar and uh, an expert in First Amendment law. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's been a delight. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 